around safety and fear every day, right? So the decision I made to be authentic means accepting the anxiety and fear that may come with me walking outside the street or going to the airport. I'm flying to Texas today, a state that is very anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ, right? Granted, Houston's pretty progressive, Dallas is pretty progressive, and Austin's pretty progressive, but that's like Atlanta and Georgia, right? Like Atlanta's really progressive, but the rest of Georgia ain't. So when I made the decision to be myself, to be authentic, I know that comes with risk. But I'm gonna tell your listeners and you what I told my mother many years ago when I was in high school, especially in college. I said to her, I'd rather die living in my truth than live a life of a lie. Dímelo, mi gente. What up, what up? Welcome to another episode of the Quien Duetes podcast brought to you by Plural. You already know on this podcast, our mission is to redefine professionalism. The way that we do that is by having a new guest each week explore the conflict that they have experienced between professionalism and authenticity. Speaking of guests, the clip that you heard in this week's intro is with Mark Travis Rivera. Mark is an award-winning professional storyteller, and telling stories is at the core of Mark's purpose in life. Growing up in New Jersey, he also attended William Patterson University, where he earned a bachelor's degree in women's and gender studies with a minor in public relations. You'll hear all about it in this episode, but he also gravitated towards performing and dance and the arts at a very young age. And he was actually the youngest person to found an integrated dance company in the United States that was focused on dancers with and without disabilities. Since then, he's gone on to do various other projects and initiatives and has been published on various publications, including Herald News, The Star Ledger, Fox News Latino, and the Huffington Post. Most recently in 2020, Rivera also launched a wellness podcast called Marking the Path, which is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Now that you know a little bit more about Mark, I think it's fair we can get into the episode. And you guessed it. We start off with the question of what does authenticity mean to you? It's an action, right? It's not just a word or a definition. There's an action to it. And for me, authenticity is a daily decision to show up be seen, be heard for exactly who I am, right? In an action, a, a decision we make daily, right? Whether it's conscious or unconscious, we make a decision every day about how to navigate and show up and show up in the world. And for me, I make the daily decision to show and be myself, to be authentic, whether it means I'm wearing a dress, nails, makeup, heels, whether that means I'm wearing I never wear baggy. I never wear sweatpants. Don't touch me. I don't wear sweatpants. <laughs> but, but if I'm dressed down, like whatever my version of dressed down is, it's usually some yoga pants or something like that. And that's my dressed down version, right? But I always show up authentically as myself. And it's not always easy, but it's a daily decision I make. And I start making that decision um, back in 2012 when I almost died of alcohol poisoning. Talk to me before that experience. Why did you not feel comfortable making that decision to be yourself? To give you some context, I grew up where Victor Cruz and Betty Wap are from. So Patterson, New Jersey. Shout out, to Jersey. Of, shout out to Jersey. You know, I'm a Jersey boy. For those who don't know, Patterson is the third largest city, I believe, in New Jersey, the first industrial city in America. And we are riddled with crime, addiction, and all these other things that you kind of see in inner cities. Um, but I feel like Patterson is the one city and, and Camden that hasn't folded gentrification. And I'm very proud of that. Like Newark and Jersey City they're unrecognizable at this point. You know, some parts of them are just so unrecognizable, especially Jersey City. So I grew up in an area where either you made it out or you went underground and not a lot of kind, right? And so I saw people 
you know, get killed and experience violence and addiction and all these things. And I knew from a young age, I started writing poetry in third grade and, and I won my first poetry contest in fourth grade, I think. Um, so I always knew that writing was going to be my ticket out. From a young age, I would just write and write and write. And so poetry, music, um, essays, I just knew I was a writer. And I went to performing arts high school for creative writing communications, where I studied creative writing, journalism, and mass media. And so at the performing arts high school in Patterson, Rosa Parks, I also began my dance journey. I started training in dance and minoring in dance my senior year. And my mentor, Erin Pride, um, just took me under her wing, right? And I was her first disabled student. Uh, my mom gave birth to me at five and a half months. I, I weighed one pound. And because of my birth circumstances, I developed something called cerebral palsy, which is if you ever, um, it runs on a spectrum, but it affects me from the hips down. So after years of therapy and surgery and dance, my mobility has drastically improved. It's, it's fascinating that you at an early age gravitated towards the arts, dance, film, production, all of those kind of things, right? I mean, at least when I was growing up, I grew up in the in what I would call the hood and the projects, I didn't see many people gravitate towards the arts. Like when you think about quote unquote, getting out either sports or academics, did you feel supported growing up when you were going into the arts? Funny, my mom didn't want me to go to performing arts high school because I think at the time she was questioning my sexuality before I was ready to come out. And that had a reputation of being the gay school where all the gay kids went because obviously the creative arts and in her defense, there were a lot of gay people <laughs> at that school. <laughs> you know, there are some who are still repressed, but that's another conversation. But, you know, Fetty Wap was a rapper, right? And he, he is a rapper and he's from my hometown. And, you know, you became a rapper or you became an athlete. Now, I'm talented in many ways. Rapping ain't one of them, right? So I'm not even going to front. <laughs> I knew that wasn't an option for me. Athletics, I mean, I'm a dancer, I'm a choreographer. I feel I felt it's very athletic, but it's not like I'm going to a professional association to be an athlete. So that wasn't an option for me. And so I was like, well, what do I have left, right? What are my other options? I did a, a with North Jersey Media Group, diversity and journalism program. And so I started getting public publication clippings or published in local newspapers in New Jersey while I was in high school. And so, you know, I knew that it was gonna take me somewhere. And so when I did my summer internship at the North Jersey Media Group, the Bergen Record, one of the senior editors looked at my high school clips and my current record clips and She's like, you know, you don't have what it takes to, she just straight out told me like, I don't think you have what it takes. And it was so crushing because my dream at that point was to go to college, get a degree in journalism and become a New York Times reporter. That was my dream. And when she said that to me, it devastated me. Actually, it's the one time I allowed someone to crush my dream. Why do you think you allowed it at the time? Well, because she was respected in the field. Um, she was respected in the office. Um, and, you know, I just assumed that I didn't have what it took. I, I still went to college for journalism, right? So I did. I did a double major in women's and gender studies and journalism, and then a minor in PR. And so when I was, because I was there in college for about four years at that point, and I was maybe like anywhere between nine to 15 credits away from finishing my journalism degree. Mm -hmm. And I made the decision to drop it so I can hurry up and graduate. It became extremely difficult to stay focused in school when my career was taking off. So um, by the time I got to college, I already had publications under my name. I had my dance company. I brought my dance company in residency at the university to get funding and support. And by 2011, my, after my first year in college, we did a first full, our first full-length production in a real theater um, that raised over $1,000 for an autism organization in New Jersey. And so, you know, my career was really taking off. 
by the time I got to my junior year in college, I was already, I already got the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Student Government Association. I had already spoke at Harvard, MIT, NYU, and Rutgers and other, you know, universities around the region. And I was already guest lecturing in my professor's other classes, <laughs> right? Which I thought was ironic because I, so when my dream of being a journalist kind of fizzled away and I got better as a journalist, you know, in college, obviously with more training, but I realized that journalism, being a New York Times reporter was out of reach. Can you think of another time when someone tried to crush your dream or challenge it? Yeah. And then I'm wondering. And it was my guidance counselor who shall remain nameless because I, I, I do care about her and she did apologize. But she had told me around the time I was applying for college. Um, as a disabled person who didn't have a lot of formal dance training, I knew I wasn't going to go to college for dance. I knew I didn't have the technique and the experience needed to get a dance degree. And, but I knew I was going to keep working with my dance company and, and, and do my journalism and my writing and all that. And so she told me when I was applying for college, you know, Mark, you're going to have to decide what you really want to do with your life. You're going to have to decide if you want to be a writer, or if you want to be a dancer, you know, choreographer. She was like, you can't do it all. And I straight up told her, I was like, yes, I can, right? I was like, not only will I do it. And so years later, I went back to my high school to visit her and visit other people. And at that point, I was choreographing work at the high school as an alumni and in college and getting published in different places. And I said to her, do you remember that conversation we had when I was a senior? Do you remember how you told me I had to choose between writing or dance? I was like, I think I'm doing pretty well for myself now. And she apologized and she, and she, you know, and I can tell that she felt some kind of way about that moment because she was like, she could have deterred me, right? She was supposed to guide me as a guidance counselor, and she could have deterred me from developing this entrepreneurial, uh, multifaceted career that I have now. And so it was, it was after that, that record experience that I, I really shifted my perception about what I can do and who I can be. What gave, what gave you the confidence to, at that point, to say, because, you know, in, in the first experience, you know, if someone tells you something about your potential in journalism and you take it at face value, you put them mm -hmm. on a pedestal, as we all do, right? We're like, oh my God, right. this person knows you're way expert, more than I do. Yeah. Yeah, there's an expert, like I'm just starting, you know what? Yeah, you know what? You're right. I'm not made for journalism, right? But then you have this other experience where you're like, no, you're wrong. I know what I'm doing. Like, wh what gave you the confidence to stand up for yourself and, and what you believed in and, and what you wanted to do? You know, I think at that point, I, I, was, I led the first student walkout, former governor Chris Christie was proposing a lot of cuts to arts education and across the state of New Jersey. And I led the first walkout, at least that I can remember in my recent history of a student walkout to protest his budget cuts. And I remember we got press attention and I mean, and I love our principal, uh, Sharon Smith. She's the principal with principals. Um, and she, uh, that was her tagline. And That's she said, um, yeah, and her, the school's tagline, the school's motto was, and it was really birthed by her, Failure is not an option. And in high school, I, I, I took that as like, you're right, failure is not an option. Of course, years later, I look back at that statement. I'm like, actually, there could be no creativity or innovation without failure, right? Mm -hmm. But when you're a high school student and you hear someone say, and she meant it in a way to motivate us to keep going. And, you know, I remember uh, her saying that to me. And at that point, you know, I, I had graduated high school with a 2.0, if that. I, um, my first two years were really difficult. I, you know, transitioning from middle school to high school. I was the chubby, braces wearing, glasses wearing, crippled kid. And I was just coming out with my sexuality and trying to figure out what that was. And my brother had been murdered my freshman year of high school. And I remember it really rocking my world. And I went to a deep depression and, and grief. And, and it's amazing looking back at some of those old pieces that I wrote in that time. They were so dark. I mean, they were so dark that like my school teacher was like, 
go to guidance counselor. She was like, you have to talk to someone. And it was during that time of grief that I was sitting in the back of the theater watching the dancers rehearse. And that's when I realized I want to be on stage. I want to perform. And, you know, I don't know had he not been murdered where I would have been in my career because that really lit a fire under me. Again, to make it out, to change my circumstances, to get educated, to... And so my first two years, my two my first two years in high school, the grades were dismal. It was just bad. And then my time both pulled up the grades in junior and senior year, um, you know, I just made it. Colleges weren't accepting me. And the only college to accept me was William Patterson University through their Education Opportunity Fund program, which is for low-income students in the state of New Jersey. I think New York called the EOP. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'm a first-generation high school graduate, first-generation college graduate. Where I come from, I knew education would help me, right? And so I think the confidence I was developing was really, um, it, it felt like do or die for me. It felt like if I don't go to college, if I don't make it to college, if I don't, if I don't start my career, I'm never going to make it out of here. And it just, I felt desperate to get out. I felt desperate to make it, whatever that means. And fast forward to 2015. Before continuing, let's take a quick break from our sponsor. COVID-19 moves fast, and now you can too. If you feel symptoms, even if they're mild, you should test fast. Test positive and at high risk for severe COVID-19? Then act fast with authorized oral treatments that can be taken at home and must be taken within five days from when symptoms begin. COVID-19 moves fast, and now you can too by asking your healthcare provider if an oral treatment is right for you. Learn about a treatment option at TreatCV19.com. This message is sponsored by Pfizer. I'm flown out to LA for uh, the reveal of my campaign, my national campaign with um, AIDS Healthcare Foundation. They did a thing called Somos, which is a campaign they did um, featuring Latinx people in the LGBT community and outside the LGBT community. And so it featured me, Zoe Luna, the act, the trans young trans Latina actress who was in the, the remake of The Craft more most recently, and the undocumented lawyer who sued Barack Obama, President Obama, um, Sergio Garcia. So, you know, I had never really met these people before the photo shoot. And then once I learned their stories, I was like, and you picked me to join them? Like, you know, because Zoe was really breaking ground for young trans people of color. And her mother was doing a lot of advocacy work as a parent. Um, you know, we had Jazz, you know, Jazz Jennings, but, you know, she wasn't a person of color. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there was a, so much nuance yeah. around that. Yeah. And so, um, and then Sergio, um, you know, to be undocumented and to go through that plight of, like, suing the president, suing the government to get his right to get a law license and all that. Like, it was just fantastic. So I thought I was in, I was in the wrong crowd. I got picked by accident. You know, the imposter syndrome. Yeah. And it was a moment. I've had many moments when I thought, wow, I made something of myself. But that was the first time that I saw a physical representation of making it, which was when I was on a billboard in LA and um in various parts of LA. And Fetty Wap was also on a billboard in LA. And I saw Fetty Wap and then a, a mile or two down on my billboard. And I was like, yo, two people from Patterson just out here on these billboards. And I was on billboards all across New York City and Miami and LA. And I was like, oh, sh- oh, oh damn. <laughs> you know, this little brown kid who's queer and crippled from Patterson, he's on billboards, you know, in major cities across the U.S. I was like, this is important, right? And it was about storytelling. It was about telling my story, right? And so, yeah, that's that's some of the experience I've had. It just, you know, I think it's just really important for young people and for people of color and people who are marginalized to think about, because often we're told, and I know you talk a lot about this as well in your work, you know, we're told that we have to be a certain way or do a certain thing or act a certain way to get these corporate jobs or to to fit in or to be successful 
And I have, over the last, you know, knock on wood, I would say at least over the last decade, I've been able to establish my brand and my career, um, not always under my terms and under my conditions that I would ideally like, um, but I've been able to build a career for myself rooted in my authenticity. My first boss, an Afro-Latina, Dominican from the Bronx in New York City at John Jay, Roseanne, shout out to Roseanne Santos. She was like, I don't believe people can be their best selves um, if they can't be their authentic selves at work. And the reason why she said that to me on my first day at the job was because throughout the interview process, I wore a suit and tie. I was conforming. Mm. You know, it was the first and last time I conformed for a job. No, actually, no. That was the first time that I actually got the job that I conformed. And then I conformed like, two years into the role to apply for another university in Jersey City. And I in, felt uncomfortable. In what way did you conform? Oh, you suit answered? and tie. Suit and okay. tie. Like, I don't do suit and ties. Like, that's not, that's never been me. Um, you know, that's never been my thing. And so. But what else? But, you know, I'm sure. Is it, was it just a suit and tie? Was it like the, the color of the suit? Was it the oh, makeup? It was, very, it was all black. Nails? It was all, I, I, okay. So this is going to be funny. I was did you told, wear earrings? Like, what did you, what did no, you I don't wear earrings. I don't have a piercing. Oh, uh, you don't have I don't, piercing. I don't, okay. yeah, I don't like, I don't like earrings on myself. I like it on other people, but not myself. Did you show um, off the tattoos? I mean, there's so many things. Yeah, I have so many tattoos. Um, at that point, I didn't have as many tattoos. So was, like, I didn't have the chest one, I, you know, but I was fully covered up. I was wearing a white button up, um, black blazer, black suit, suit pants, black dress socks, black shoes, and a tie. I think the tie I had on was either black. I think for the first round of interviews, I did a black tie. And then for the second round of interviews, I did like a, a different color shirt and a purple tie or something like that. And was this your first like? So John Jay was my first full-time role that wasn't my dance company. It wasn't, you know, my, my other projects. And so during my interview process, I told her, I told Rosanna, I was like, listen, I'm doing nothing for me. And she said, you know, I don't really know what that means. And I was like, I, I just don't dress like this. I was like, I wear, you know, dresses and skirts and heels and makeup. And I was told when I went to John Jay, because John Jay has a reputation of being a um, police school, criminal justice school, right? And at the time, it was very seen as a very suit and tie thing. There wasn't a lot of queer visibility at the campus. And so uh, a former colleague of mine at, at William Patterson told me, take your nails off. Now, for anyone who's listening to this, who gets their nails done, who, who does acrylic, y'all know how expensive that crap is. <laughs> you just, and, it was, and it was a fresh set. It wasn't like, you know, I had it for a, couple, you know, a month or so or two, and I could just, I had to replace it anyways. This is a brand new set. There was no way in hell I was taking my nails off for a job interview. I mean, for a job I may not even get. But they were like a nude color uh, and they were really square and short. But I didn't wear makeup. And it was the summertime, so I'm glad I didn't wear makeup. It would have been, it would have been melting off in New York City in, in August. <laughs> um, and so, but I wore a suit and tie and all that, right? This, I was during the, this was during the interview they told you to take your nails off? No, but as I was getting ready to do the interview, my colleague at my at William Patterson University told me to take my nails off. Like I shouldn't do my nails because it may distract or or count against me. Now remember, this is 2015, right? So it's not like as progressive or visible as trans and gender non-conforming people are or non-binary people are today. It wasn't as visible back then. Yes, we had the tipping point with Laverne Cox. Yes, Janet Mock came out, but this is like long before uh, cultural acceptance was at, was at a higher rate. And so the norm was you conform to what, when you want to get that job, you conform. And so this is before, you know, cultural attitudes of the trans and non-conforming people uh, were, you know, more improved across the country. Now, in the time of this recording we're doing, there are several bills being passed across the country, uh, Florida, Texas, um, various other states, where they're banning 
the, you know, the teachers from talking about LGBTQ issues in schools, right? I saw, yeah. Uh, and also they're, they're banning in Texas, they're trying to make it so that parents who give gender affirming care to their trans children can be charged with a felony and, you know, convicted of a crime. And so, you know, and not to get political on your podcast, but Let's you know, do it. I think I think it's really important when we talk about authenticity, how, you know, especially where I grew up, you know, people say, you know, yo, be real, be real, yo, like be you, right? But that always came with conditions. Yeah. Yo, be you, be real, meant behave in which I in a way in which I expect you to. And I think people also don't realize that like there are policies in place whether they be unspoken or actual in law that prevent us from being ourselves to your yeah. point, right? Like if there's a law in place that says like, if you, if you are, if you self-identify as queer and you show that visibly, I can legally fire you something like that. Right. right. Yeah. There's no, there's no federal uh, equal. There's, there's, there's no federal law that bans discrimination against LGBTQ people. Some States have it in place, but it's not widespread. And um, in many states, you can still be fired for being queer or trans. You can be kicked out of housing for being queer or trans. You will experience, um, in some cases, medical discrimination. Um, and so there's a lot of things happening in the queer community. And, you know, I wrote about this around 2013 when SCOTUS, when the Supreme Court ruled that Section 3 of DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, um, was discriminatory against queer couples, you know, LGBTQ people. I said, what the hell do I care about marriage if I still am saying people commit suicide at high rates or HIV continues to be rampant across the community. Uh, if we're still experiencing employment discrimination, housing discrimination, why the hell do I care if I can get married, right? Yeah. And the moment marriage equality passed, all these organizations that popped up, a lot of them folded. A lot of them, rather than reallocating their resources to HIV prevention or homelessness or mental health for queer people, they just dwindled away. So, okay, I can't I'm saying this out loud. Marriage equality was never about LGBTQ people's rights. It was some queer people's attempt to be heteronormative, to conform. Because queer throughout history has always been a contrast to heteronormativity on purpose, right? Because heterosexual, heteronormativity um, isn't working. You know what I mean? It just isn't working, right? Men are just not thinking of themselves. They don't have hygiene, most of them. They don't know how to program themselves because they have the condition not to. Right, to be a man, um, you know, and there's all these things around, and, and that's just a, a hyperbole, but like, you know, it's true for some, for some heteronormativity is so sensitive and so fragile that there are some men who put on social media, you know, I, I don't wash myself properly because I don't want to touch my, my ass, you know what I mean? And so it's like, yo, what? Like, how is that gay? You know what I mean? And so it's, it's weird like that. And there, there are some people who, you know, uh, us queer folks, we always get, um, kind of labeled as sexualized or hypersexual but then there are straight people who are taking their young sons to sleep with sex workers to prove their manhood at a young age when it would be considered you know statutory rape and so I'm just like how how are we the ones sexualizing children and indoctrinating them when our entire lives we have been taught this is the way you should be and we and we contradict that and build our own way right yeah. and so I think about how heteronormativity really impacts us in the workplace because, you know, professionalism is rooted in heteronormativity. This is what is expected yeah. of men, of women, and there is nothing in between. I think the expectations and the shoulds are, are really important because it shapes the way of how we assimilate, you know, going back to the example of you showing up in, in like a suit and whatever 
the idea of a professional is supposed to look like is one thing, but it's interesting that even in that example, you said to the person who's like, yo, this is just me right now. Like, if you hire me, this is what you should expect. I'm going to come in right. looking like X, Y, and Z, right? There's one thing to say it, but I'm curious about the experience of you actually doing it, right? Oh, what I did it. Yeah. Wow. He, after, so my first day, I wore a, a white blouse, a cream blouse with a black cardigan that was long and a white and black and white plaid um, pant that was high-waisted, a capri type thing, and then some black shoes. And after she told me what she told me on my first day of the work, I was like, bet, let me see if she really meant it. Mm. I think the next day I wore a dress and I just did it, did it. Throughout my entire year at, 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 at John Jay, actually, when I didn't wear makeup, some people got worried. Like, you okay? And I'm like, <laughs> what do you mean? They're like, you're not wearing makeup. And I was like, hmm, like, that's weird. But, but I, cause they just got so expected to me, you know, having the, the, the nice outfits and the nails and the makeup, they got used to all the glam, but you know, that's not, you know, makeup is not forever. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, I don't tattoo it on my face. <laughs> it washes off. There are some days when I don't feel like putting it on. There are some days where I need to put it on. There are some days when I don't have to, right. And I feel fine not putting it on. And so, you know, I think it's, yeah, I did it. And, you know, I, I will say when I met with the vice president who has become a great mentor of mine, Lynette Cook Francis. Um, she said to me during my interview with her, because I had to do a round with her before I got the offer. And it was more of a, just a, she trusted my director to make it, to pick me, to make the right person. She just wanted to meet with the person before they joined the team officially. Yeah. And so I met with her and I was super nervous. And, you know, at that point she was the only, I think she was the only black woman in senior leadership. It was mostly white men. Mm-hmm. And the president of college, Jeremy Travis, was obviously a white man. And then she said to me, she's like, you know, I believe, that representation matters. And she was like, I want my team to reflect the students we serve. And John Jay is very diverse. It's a minority serving institution. It's a Hispanic serving institution. Um, most of the students are Pell Grant eligible and first generation students. Uh, and so, and it's also a big pipeline for law enforcement and criminal justice field and law. And so, you know, I, <laughs> I really appreciate that. I, I felt and I love, this is why I love New York City, right? Because I don't think this experience would have happened anywhere else, but I would hear Spanglish and Spanish and English throughout the halls and no one batted an eye, right? It was expected, it was the norm. Um, Cafe Bustela was ever flowing, you know what I mean? Like, it was just like, hello, you know what I mean? Especially in my little area in the, in the suite that I was in, you know, coffee, Cafe Bustela was flowing, you know what I mean? And so I really loved my time at John Jay. I was, it was actually hard to leave John Jay. I didn't make that decision lightly. Um, and so, you know, what I think it's what happens oftentimes is that, and this is when I knew I was doing the right thing at John Jay, when an alumni came back, it was a trans woman, and she was just innocently walking past my, my office and my door was open. It, t- it tends to be open. And she like doubled back and she looked at me and she's like, hello. And I was like, hi. And I think I was wearing a dress and makeup. I was like visibly gender not conforming that day. And she was like, I've never in my life seen someone like you at John Jay. Mm -hmm. I wish you would have been here when I was a student. And I get chills thinking about that because, same, you know, like people need to see themselves reflected. Mm -hmm. And I've made it in my mission in my career as a a professional storyteller to tell stories that reflect not just our shared humanity, but our experiences that coincide and intersect you know like my first collection on amazon drafted and perfect collection of writing is 15 years worth of writing in one book and 
ironically, that little book has gotten me into doors that I otherwise may not have been into. And I made all the money I invested in the book back, right, which is great. Um, and so I was recognized in New York City at Alibi at a gay bar. You know, if, I, if my book, if my, if my TEDx talk, if my blog, if my dance pieces, if just one person sees themselves and chooses not to end their life and chooses not to give up on their dreams, then that would be my legacy. Yeah, I, I get I get chills thinking about it because I've had people on the podcast that have self-identified as queer and they say things like, I'm scared to put on my LinkedIn profile that I was like the, the treasurer for the pride group in college. You know, at work when I show up, I, I try to do my best to not let my coworkers know that I'm queer. And what they do, you know, in you can go back to the episodes, but what they've said is like, I try to only show my masculine side, you know, the traditional masculine side, if you will, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. I have a, I have a, you know, quote unquote feminine side, but I don't show that at work because even the gay people or the queer people that are at work, they don't show that side because that doesn't align with professionalism, right? Or right. what we think is professionalism, but it's true. Like, by you being yourself, it almost gives someone else permission. It was like, oh shit, Mark's doing that? Shit, I'm, watch me tomorrow. But right, I'm wondering right. for you though, right? Because you didn't have the representation in that in that institution to, to give yourself no. permission. So give me a sneak peek into the potential anxieties or the nervousness or maybe even the fear in that moment. Or was the permission that you needed the people that were interviewing you literally telling you, yo, I want you to be yourself. Yeah, you know, that helped me at John Jay. That helped me. You know, my, my time at William Patterson, I was, I, was, I was so well known on that campus, you know, from the president down to the janitor, everyone knew who I was on that campus, right? So yeah. everyone, everyone was very protective of me. Everyone had my back. I remember one day I was in the, in the dining hall and someone, I don't want to say the F, the F word, but it's F-A-G. Mm-hmm. And, and, I was shocked because at that point, you know, it was in the 20, between 2010 and 2014, I was in college. And so, you know, within that point, there was a lot of progress being made, but like there was still a lot of homophobia and queer antagonism on college campuses across the country. And so I remember my friend who was sitting next to me, uh, who's really my, my other friends, his girlfriend is my friend and he was just, you know, my associate. He popped up ready to fight on my behalf. And he's a white guy who's super masculine, who just really cared about me and really wanted to protect me in that moment. And I said, you know, like, please don't fight. Like, you know, don't, please don't get yourself in trouble on my behalf. Um, but that's when I realized, right, that like I was so protected on, in undergrad and, and when I started my career at William Patterson that leaving William Patterson was really scary for me because I thought to myself, uh, what if I don't have the same support in other, sp- in other spaces, right? Yeah. Um, like even doing- though even though someone is telling you like it's okay, it's like, like you right. said, you were like, I'm going to test them. I'm going to show yeah. up as myself. But there had, were you nervous at all? I was super nervous. I was more nervous during the interview process because I thought it was going to count against me. And I remember talking to my supervisor after I got the job, obviously. I said to her, I was like, you know, I was really nervous during my interview. And she like, it didn't seem like you were nervous. She was like, you rocked it. And, she, and I was like, thanks. And she was like, you know, and we loved your nails. <laughs> and she said, I couldn't stop looking at them because she was like, I wish my nails looked that good. And I thought to myself, well, yo, that could have counted against me at a different institution. Yeah. Right, because it could distract them from the content and the worth of my of my experience because they would have just boiled down to like, oh, he looks pretty, right? Oh, he looks good. Um, and it was such a contrast to the, even though it was neutral in color, it was still, 
you know, it was obvious that I had nails. And so, you know, it was such a contrast to the black suit and tie uh, appearance, right? Mm-hmm. And so I made a decision. And, and again, I told you authenticity is a daily decision, right? Mm-hmm. And so I remember when I was interviewing for a role at in Jersey City, um, this is before I moved to New York City. Um, I was really nervous. So first of all, two years after I started that job with John Jay, or a year and a half after I started that job with John Jay, um, that suit that I put on for the other interview, it didn't fit the same way. I was real tight. I was like, I gain some weight. I didn't talk about the freshman, the professional freshman 15. When you're a professional 15, when you, when you start working and you have lunch every day outside with coworkers or whatever, you go out for happy hour. They don't talk about that weight, but that's a different story. But <laughs> I remember feeling so uncomfortable about the entire interview process. I remember I made it all the way to the final round with the, um, I believe she was the vice president of academic affairs or something like that. And she was so rude to me. And she did one of those gotcha moments and she was a white woman. And this was a, to be fair, this was a, a, a religious affiliated school. And uh, so I was like, oh, whatever. And, you know, I told the director I'd be reporting to, I was like, you know, this is, this is who I am, I'm queer, blah, blah, blah. And he was a, a black man. He seemed okay with it, but I, I wasn't getting the vibe that that institution was going to support me in the same way John Jay has. So then when I met with the VP of Academic Affairs and she did that gotcha moment, I was like, oh, she's not really interested in my development. She's not interested in, in someone like me working here. What, was, know, what was the was gotcha a, moment? Like, how did you know? Oh yeah, it was a gotcha moment because she was talking about, so the position was a, like a, a student success um, student success coach or something. It was like a, for, the, for their trio program. And um, very, it's trio is very similar to EOF in that regard. And so I, there was a moment about registration, it was an advisement registration question. And she kind of framed it in such a, a, a tricky way. It was just a gotcha moment. I can't remember verbatim what she said, but it was just like a, you know, it just felt like she was like, oh, like she was just like, once, once that moment happened, the interview, she just, she disengaged with me. It was, it was, she wasn't very warm. She wasn't very welcoming. And so I couldn't tell whether that was because I was queer or because I couldn't tell what it was, but I was like, you know what, F this. So I didn't get the job, which was no surprise. And I was proud of myself for making that, so that making it that far. Um, and so I devoted myself to staying at John Jay and I kept trying to pivot at John Jay to different roles outside of communications. But I became on campus, I became known as the communications guru. I became known as the person who knew how to communicate with students well um, through various platforms, emails, um, new social media, things like that. So people were not, they couldn't see me outside of that. And so I knew I had to pivot in my career to make it out and, and to grow. And so that's what I did. But John Jay still has a very special place in my heart, you know. And I, and I don't know if everyone feels this way about their first professional role out of college. So I feel very fortunate to still have relationships with people. I mean, I was on committees with the president of the college, Carol Mason, and I was talking to the senior leadership team. Like people just knew who I was, right? And again, it felt very similar to my time at William Patterson, you know. And so I love working in higher ed, but I had to pivot out. Yeah, I mean, what I love about your experience is that it's a, it's a combination of like, quote unquote, corporate academia, but also you've done so much work on the side to empower your community, build that representation that in many ways, you know, maybe you wish you had when you were younger. I'm curious for you, we're not done, right? To your, I love the fact, I love what you said about like it being a daily decision just because I was authentic yesterday doesn't mean that I'm comfortable being authentic today right right but as you but also as a safety so I didn't jump you but to answer the other part of the other question you asked me earlier around safety and fear every day right so the decision I made to be authentic means accepting the anxiety and fear that may come 
with me walking outside the street or going to the airport. I'm flying to Texas today, a state that is very anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ, right? Granted, Houston's pretty progressive, Dallas is pretty progressive, and Austin's pretty progressive, but that's like Atlanta and Georgia, right? Like Atlanta's really progressive, but the rest of Georgia ain't. So when I made the decision to be myself, to be authentic, I know that comes with risk. But I'm gonna tell your listeners and you what I told my mother many years ago when I was in high school, especially in college. I said to her, I'd rather die living in my truth than live a life of a lie. And what inspires- I'd rather die living in my truth than living a life that is a lie. What inspires you to continue living in that truth? That stubbornness has really saved me. I mean, it hurts me sometimes, but for the most part, it has saved me. It has saved me in my career. It has saved me in my personal life. You know, just being- and I know sometimes we see people as who are stubborn as problematic, but there is something to be said about someone who refuses to dim their light. Hell, the moon can be surrounded by darkness and it never dims its light. Think about that. Surrounded by darkness, the moon never dims its light. And so why should I? Whether personally or professionally, why should I dim my light? You yeah. know? And it's that level of transparency. Oh, I'm getting emotional thinking about that. But yeah, there's, <laughs> you know, you ever say something like, damn, that's deep, Mark. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but you know, I think about people like you, right? I think about people like you and your transparency. And, you know, if you follow me on LinkedIn, I know you do, but if others follow me on LinkedIn, they know that I talk a lot about mental health and, um, you know, my experiences with mental health and all that. I'm very vulnerable on that platform because I know it can help people. It can change conversations, right? I do a lot of diversity, equity, inclusion work. And, you know, I really appreciate people like you who are really empowering others to be transparent. You know, I heard your I Quit episode. And I thought to myself, like, yo, he is just fearless. When I saw that, that initial post that you quit, I was like, he done lost his mind. I was like, and, and even I had, I, I took a moment and I was like, <laughs> I, I heard that J-Lo song, My Love Don't Cost a Thing. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, and I, I replaced the word my love with my mind, mm-hmm. my spirit, right? Mm-hmm. Because you can't put a price tag on your mental health and your happiness. If those two things suffer for the sake of money, honey, I've learned that money and success and accolades, right? And titles, they don't hold you at night. They don't cuddle with you and whisper great things in your ear. That's a fact. So when you come home every day or you unplug for the day and all you left with is who you are as a person, are you happy? Mm-hmm, Do you mm-hmm. feel held? And so if a job, if a professional experience is not uplifting you and amplifying your voice, and supporting your happiness, right? No amount of money is worth that. And I hope that people who hear that episode, I quit from your podcast, I hope that it dares them to free themselves, right? And of course, you have a lot of privilege for the, the, the amount of salary you're making and your ability to save up and build a safety net so you can kind of go full-time with your own organization and your own business. I know I had to you privately, but I feel like it's important to mention uh, publicly is that, you know, your career, your business is going to take off. And I know that for, I know that in my bones because when you're authentic, right? When you show up as yourself, you are allowing for more human connection. If those two things suffer for the sake of money, honey, I've learned that money and success and accolades, right? And titles, they don't hold you at night. They don't cuddle with you and whisper great things in your ear. That's a fact. So when you come home every day or you unplug for the day and all you left with is who you are as a person, are you happy, right? Mm-hmm, Do you mm-hmm. feel held? And so if a job, if a professional experience is not uplifting you and amplifying your voice and supporting your happiness, no amount of money is worth that. 
And I hope that people who hear that episode, I quit from your podcast. I hope that it dares them to free themselves, right? And of course, you have a lot of privilege for the, the, the amount of salary you're making and your ability to save up and build a safety net so you can kind of go full-time with your own organization, and your own business. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I know I said this to you privately, but I feel like it's important to mention uh, publicly is that, you know, your career, your business is going to take off. And I know that for, I know that in my bones, because when you're authentic, right, when you show up as yourself, you are allowing for more human connection. You are allowing for more people to see themselves through your experiences. At the end of the day, when we die, and we will die, right, that's the one guarantee in life mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that we will be born and that we will die. That is a life cycle, right? Yeah, yeah. What happens in between is a bunch of uncertain things. And so for me, when I get to that point of transition in, my, in this lifetime, the awards won't go underground with me. Yes, I'll be known for this and known for that and whatever, and making history in the dance, the dance world. But what will be remembered of me, is not just my professional success in my life, but how I lived and how I loved. No one goes into their deathbed and thinks, I wish I would have worked more. No one, never. No, not even, I've never heard that story, right? Never. And as a queer person, as a person with gender non-conforming, the likelihood of me being killed is much higher. I can go to Texas this weekend and not, and not make it back to Atlanta by, on Sunday night. And I hope I do, but that's the risk I take to be myself. Mi gente, that wraps up this week's episode of the Quintuetas podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor, leave us a rating and a review. It just helps us in the algorithm to ensure that these stories get heard by as many people as possible. Scaling these stories and experiences is the only way that we're going to redefine professionalism. Thank you. I see you next week.